I'd like to invite you to open your Bible today to Matthew chapter 4. It's page 1499 in your pew Bible. The Bible is such an incredible book. We as Christians have an incredible opportunity to get acquainted with the God of the universe through His written word. And it's interesting because before we trust Christ, before we enter into a relationship with God, we don't really care what He has to say, do we? It's dead to us. The Bible is dead to us. It's just just some kind of relic, right? I mean, it's just the old thing that's in your grandparents' house. But then when we trust Christ it suddenly becomes to have significant meaning. It has extreme bearing on our lives. Suddenly the Bible becomes beautiful. It becomes completely relevant to us. So we want to drink deeply from it. So let's do that this morning. Let's drink deeply from God's written word. In Matthew chapter 4, and verse, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You how we do love it. We want to drink deeply from it. We want it to have everlasting impact. We want to go through life understanding and knowing this book and its application to our lives. Father, I pray that you'll open our eyes by your Spirit this morning to what your Word has to say for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Deflate gate. Some of you are smiling. Most of you are smiling. Deflate gate. At this point, it's probably not news to you whether you're a football fan or not, that this past Sunday night, it came out that the New England Patriots were playing with footballs that were considered deflated. They had about a pound of pressure less than they were supposed to have. So all over the news this week, not just ESPN, not just Nesson, but ABC and Fox and NBC and all of these major news channels were talking about not what's happening in the Middle East, not what's happening here. In other ways, they're talking about Footballs. 
Many of us who had no idea how much air pressure was in a football now know that the proper NFL football has between 12.5 and 13.5 pounds per square inch in the ball. And the Patriots have been accused of deflating the footballs on purpose in order to be able to grip it better, for the quarterback to be able to throw it better, for the running back to be able to hold it better, to get a better grip. And whether the Patriots are guilty of actually purposefully cheating is up for debate. And different people are obviously saying different things. And really, um, you know, Brady being called liars. And uh, there's all kinds of things being said at this point. But the coach of the Patriots came out in an impromptu press conference last night and reiterated that they had nothing to do with manipulating the footballs. But there's an incredibly valuable lesson to learn from all of this. You can spend your life living for what counts. You can do the right thing. You can be active within the body of Christ. You can be a good father. You can be a good dad. You can be a good wife. You can be a good mother. You can be a good brother. You can be a good sister. Whatever the case is. You can be a philanthropist. You can give thousands of dollars away. You can give your life to serving overseas. You can give all your money to the poor. But in one decision, you can forever taint your legacy. A lot of why this football issue is such a big deal is because seven years ago, the Patriots were caught for cheating in what's called Spygate, where they were considered cheaters for filming the signals of other teams during the games. And the result of this, in the eyes of many, is that their Super Bowl wins that they won in the early 2000s are considered tainted and not won fairly. So the legacy of the Patriots, in the eyes of many, it's tainted, the legacy of the Patriots, because of that thing called Spygate. Bill Belichick, although he's one of the best coaches to ever coach in the game, has a tainted legacy because of Spygate. This whole football deflation issue, if it does come back that Brady or whoever specifically wanted the footballs with less air on purpose, it will forever taint his legacy. A man who's played 15 seasons with the same team, gone to the Super Bowl six times, more than any other quarterback, it will taint his legacy. When his name comes up as the best quarterback to ever play the game, it will always come back to the air pressure in footballs. When he stands up to get inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame, people are going to be sitting there and thinking about the air pressure in footballs. What a valuable lesson that we could live our whole lives doing something that we love to do and doing something for others or or whatever the case is and we can completely taint our legacy with one bad decision. This is why we don't worship Tom Brady. This is why we don't worship the New England Patriots. Some of us, we don't worship Andrew Luck, or Tony Romo, or Tannehill. This is why we don't worship anybody but Jesus. Because all of those people, all of those organizations, all of these other things can disappoint us and will disappoint us. So if you're wondering how football relates to this morning's passage, it's in this. Jesus Christ came to earth and he was tempted in all points like we are, yet he was without sin. The legacy of Jesus Christ, although he was tempted, is pristine. He never disobeyed the rules. He never did anything to upset his father. Even every move he made throughout his life was always in step with the will of God. So when he ascended into heaven, the Spirit and the Father and the angels welcomed him into heaven. They didn't think anything else but perfect. 
but pristine. There was no blemish. There was nothing to taint his legacy. But in this morning's passage, Satan is going to try to taint the legacy of Jesus. Satan is going to try and blemish his perfect record so far in his life. He's going to somehow try to taint this one who's called the Son of God. You remember last week that part of what we looked at was the baptism of Jesus. And after his baptism, a a voice comes out of heaven and says what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But right after Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit actually leads him into the desert in order to be tempted by the devil. Look down again at verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness or the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So this is a strange situation. Jesus is being led into the desert by the Spirit, in order to be tempted by the devil. And the one, one of the things that just has to come to our mind is why? Why would the Holy Spirit do this? Why would the Holy Spirit lead Jesus into a place of temptation? Why would it be necessary? What's the point? If Jesus is the Son of God, like we heard last week, then why would He be led into the desert to be tempted? What would be the point? We, we can believe God at His word, right? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this is an important question to ask because the answer is going to tell us what we should believe about Jesus. So last week, in the beginning, or in the baptism of Jesus, we see that he's pronounced as the Son of God. That voice comes, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So why, if God is so pleased with Jesus, is he allowing the Spirit to be brought into the desert to be tempted by the devil? But I think the answer comes in what the word testing means. So he was brought to the desert to be tempted tested or to be tempted by the devil. What does testing do? What does temptation even do? I'm sure many of you can remember back to school when you were tested. So what does that test do? It reveals what's up here, right? It reveals what's in your brain. And what does temptation do? When you're in a moment of temptation, if if you choose the wrong thing when you're tempted or you choose the right thing, what's that revealing about you? Temptation reveals what's going on in your heart. So, if you choose the wrong thing when tempted to sin, you're showing where your allegiance is. If you choose the right thing, you're showing where your allegiance is. You're showing if you love yourself more than you love God. And so that's what's going on here with Jesus. The reason Jesus is being brought into the desert to be tempted is to reveal that He actually is who the Father has said He is. That He actually is the beloved Son in whom God is well pleased. So Satan's temptations are going to challenge this. He knows that the Father referred to Jesus as his beloved Son, and so he's going to address him in the first two temptations by saying, if you are the Son of God, then do this. He's saying, if you really are the Son of God, then you should be able to turn stone into bread. If you are the Son of God, then you should be able to jump off of a high place of the temple and be completely protected. But the result of this testing of Jesus will only prove that he is exactly who the Father has said that he is, that he is God's beloved Son. Look down at the first temptation in verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Mouth of God. I think the devil's 
language is kind of interesting here. It almost sounds like reverse psychology. You ever do that as a kid? Or maybe you do that with your kids now. You use reverse psychology. So something like, I bet you can't clean your room within 10 minutes. And then that, hoping that that will motivate them, right, to clean their bedroom within... I hear the guilty people. <laughs> but you try to motivate them with the reverse psychology. So the devil is coming to Jesus and saying, so if you are the Son of God, supposedly you're the Son of God, so if you are the Son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Or if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread, but I'm not so sure that you're quite able to. But if Jesus could turn stone into bread, is really not up for debate. This is the guy who's going to walk on water. This is the guy who's going to calm the seas with his words. So there's no question that Jesus could take a hot, hard, desert stone and turn it into a warm, soft piece of bread. The point is that he's choosing not to. Jesus is choosing not to do what Satan is telling him to do because Jesus does not live by what Satan says. Jesus lives by what God says. So Jesus responds to the devil in verse 4 and says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So hear me on this. One of the best ways to respond to the devil in times of temptation is to quote the Bible. Take your example from Jesus. When the devil comes to tempt him, Jesus responds, It is written. We can see the downfall of people even within the pages of the Bible. That if they had only thought to themselves, it is written, God says this, it would have held them back from falling into sin. You can think back to the beginning of the Bible with Adam and Eve. This is the way that they should have responded to the devil in the garden. It is written, God says no. This is what should have gone through Moses' mind before he disobeyed God and struck the rock in the desert. This is the way King David should have responded when he was tempted to commit adultery. They should have all said, I cannot do this because God says not to. God tells me to do the opposite. So when the devil comes to you and he tempts you to look lustfully upon another woman or another man, you would do well to respond, it is written, anybody who looks at a woman with lust or a man with lust has committed adultery in his or her heart. If you're tempted to steal or to lie or to cheat or to gossip or whatever the case is, your mind should immediately think, God says no. It is written. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He is living by the word of God. Is this how we live? Do you, do you consciously live by every word that comes from the mouth of God? Do we as a church? Is that our desire? And the things that we do and how we act with each other and, and what, we, what we do together as a church in this community or together, is it because we're living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Every word in the Bible. You will excel in your Christian life if this is the case. So many Christians wonder why they're floundering. They wonder why they, they don't feel like they're growing. They, they wonder why that there's this constant sinful pattern in their life that's year after year after year and it won't go away. But when you ask what their Bible reading is like, it becomes obvious what the problem is. They don't live by the Word of God. They don't love it. They don't heed it. They don't go to it. They don't pray over God's Word. I'll give you a little secret about myself, and I'm sure the same is true for you. When I am unconfident in the promises of God, when I struggle trusting God, when I am doubting God and feeling as though my faith is extremely weak and I'm on the edge of making a horrible wreck of my life, 
you can mark it down. I have not been in God's word. But this is not how Jesus lived. Jesus lived by the very word of God, and so should we. Look down at verse 5. You'll see the second temptation here in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So the devil leads Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem, and they're standing on the highest point of the temple, and Satan says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself off of the temple. Throw yourself off the temple. And that's kind of a strange request, right? You're standing on the highest point of the temple. Hey, why don't you just jump off, right? Just throw yourself off of the temple. But after the first temptation of Jesus, Satan has gotten wise to how Jesus is going to respond to him. The devil's not a fool. He's a quick learner. He's been around a long time. So he knows that Jesus is going to initially respond with Scripture. So what Satan does is he throws in some Scripture of his own. But the problem is that Satan misuses the Bible. He quotes from Psalm 91 and he twists it and uses it to try to manipulate Jesus in order to get Jesus to respond in the way that he wants him to respond. And this is what Satan has historically done. In the very beginning of the Bible, again, when you think about Adam and Eve, when you think about Satan coming in the form of a serpent, the Bible says that he was more crafty than any other creature in the field. And so Satan comes to Eve and how does he tempt Eve? What is the bait that he uses with Eve? Satan takes what God says, he twists it, and then he uses the twisted version of God's word to manipulate Eve. And he's trying to do the same thing with Jesus here. The Bible was a tool for Satan to try to manipulate and tempt Jesus. And we have to keep this in mind as we live our lives. Just because somebody is quoting the Bible doesn't mean that they're applying it and using it correctly. One of the most discouraging things is to see people who call themselves Christians or even people who call themselves pastors and they're using the Bible to promote themselves or to get money from people or to build for themselves some kind of audience and big vast following or using the Bible to tell people even what they want to hear. They manipulate the scriptures to satisfy the itching ears that the people of our day have. And that's exactly what Satan is doing. He's using the Bible to manipulate and to tempt Jesus. So resist this kind of manipulation. Know the word so that you can detect when it is being manipulated. Jesus knows the word and he knows when it's being manipulated. So he's going to respond back to Satan with scripture. But can you imagine if Jesus said, wow, Satan, you're you're quoting the Bible. Are you coming along in your spiritual life? I mean, can can you imagine if if Jesus just kind of responded, wow, Satan, you're you're quoting the Bible. Maybe I should throw myself Oh, Psalm 91 says that I won't even hit my foot on a stone. Oh, okay, I'll go ahead and jump off. No. Look how Jesus responds in verse 7. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Let me ask you this, the same thing with the stones. Could Jesus have thrown himself off of the temple and have been safe? Jesus could have easily thrown himself off of it and the angels would have come and caught him. But why would it have been wrong for him to do that? 
Jesus was refusing to throw himself off of the temple because as one commentator put it, it would be to act as if God is there to serve the Son and rather than the reverse. So Jesus came to earth in order to submit himself and to serve the Father. He didn't come to earth so that the Father would serve him. So to throw himself off of the temple was to cause the Father to serve the Son. And that's not what God's will was. So Jesus was choosing not to jump off the temple because his life was to be about doing the will of the Father, not making the Father do the will of the Son. But there's still one more temptation. Look at verse 8. This is the third and final temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So they go from the desert to the temple in Jerusalem, and now they're on a very high mountain overlooking the kingdoms of the world and admiring their splendor. And Satan looks at Jesus and he says, I will give you all of this, the kingdoms and all of their splendor, if you get on your knees and worship me. What arrogance. Pride to think that these kingdoms were even his to give away is a joke. But to look at the very Son of God and believe the kingdoms were his to give away is even worse. Satan is trying to get God's Son to bow before him when it is he who should be doing the bowing. Yet Jesus responds for the final time and says, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord and him you serve only. And so the devil leaves. In our world today, the We often make light of the devil. We make light of his work. We just kind of picture him as a red guy with horns and a pitchfork. And even as Christians, we can kind of buy into that a little bit. Kind of buy into that Satan isn't that strong or he really isn't out to get anyone or whatever the case is. But turn over to Ephesians 6. I want to kind of see the work of the devil a little bit. How we should respond to the spiritual forces that are at work in the world. But Ephesians 6, we're so enamored with the present and with, with what is going on in the, in the physical realm. And we get so enamored with that that we completely miss what is happening in the spiritual. We, we wake up and the first thought is, shut the alarm clock off. Second thought, where's my coffee? Third thought, shower off to work. So we we just kind of have this rotation every single day. We kind of do the same thing and we forget that there's an intense spiritual battle always raging. But Ephesians 6 in verse 10. Finally be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. That's, That's a command. That's not a suggestion. But why should you put on the armor of God? So that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. And now look at what our struggle is against. Look at the place where the battle lies in verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, it's against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
So this is what Jesus is undergoing in Matthew chapter 4. Satan is coming to him and tempting him with physical things. He's tempting him with bread. He's tempting him to jump off of a temple. He's tempting him with the splendor of the kingdoms of the, of the world. So the temptation was physical, but the struggle was intensely spiritual. And the weapon that Jesus took into this spiritual battle was the sword of the Spirit, which Paul goes on to say is the sword of the, God's word is the sword of the Spirit. But Satan wanted to destroy Jesus, but he couldn't do it. And the next best thing would be for Satan to be able to destroy you. The Bible says that Satan is a roaring lion. He's prowling around looking for someone to devour. He would love to devour you. He would love to take you out. The spiritual battle waged every single day is going on in your life. And you're either going to gain spiritual ground or you're going to lose it. But the big thing I want to take from this passage this morning is the shining example of Jesus. Jesus wouldn't yield to Satan. Jesus would stand tall to the greatest agent of darkness and completely shut him down. So this is the king you serve. The king that's about to set up his kingdom and and to begin ruling a reign and eventually ascend and to sit down at the right hand of his father and reign over the kingdom. This is the king you serve. A a king that is completely undaunted by the greatest agent of darkness in the, the spiritual realms. Jesus wouldn't turn the stones into bread because he was showing that he didn't live by bread but that he lived by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. Jesus wouldn't throw himself off the temple because he was refusing to put God to the test. Jesus wouldn't bow down and worship Satan because Jesus only worships God. And at the end of the account in verse 11, Jesus commands Satan to go away and Satan must obey. Jesus shows him who truly has the power. So Satan, as the villain, is the one who's coming and trying to destroy the coming kingdom before it even begins. Yet this account shows that he's already subservient to the king. Satan is completely under the fist of Christ. This is the king we serve. In order for us to be able to see that Jesus is truly who the Father says he is, he was allowed to enter into a time of temptation so that we could see that it is 100% true Jesus is the Son of God in whom God is well pleased and His legacy is absolutely perfect. And because He was tempted, we can be comforted. Because the author of Hebrew tells us that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have a high priest who has been tempted in every way like we've been tempted, yet He was without sin. And so the result of Jesus being tempted is that now we are able to approach God, we are able to approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Satan wanted to destroy Jesus. He wanted to damage his legacy and he wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your legacy. But God has saved you. He has given you the gospel You are not a son or daughter of Satan if you belong to Jesus. You are a son or daughter of God. And so for those of us who are in Christ and you have accepted Him, God is pleased with you because He is pleased with His beloved Son. The legacy of His Son is perfect. It's pristine. And it's a legacy that we share in, although we are completely guilty and unworthy of it.
Let's pray. Lord, I thank you again for your word. I thank you for how it does change us. God, I pray that we'll use your word as a result of being changed by it in the conflicts that we have, in the struggles that we have, whether it's indwelling sin that's constantly showing itself within us and trying to, to gain ground, or whether it is actual temptation from the spiritual realms, Lord, I pray that you'll protect our church. I pray that you'll protect those who are within it. God, I pray that you'll give us a passion for your word so that when these trials and struggles do come, that we'll be able to fight them. As a result of the power of the gospel within us, through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.